0: Oh hello friends welcome back my guest today is Morgan Housel you should be familiar with him considering he's been on twice already in 2020 but it's a year of financial instability to say the least and Morgan's new book The Psychology of Money is everything you need to know about how to become wealthy stay wealthy and be happy It doesn't matter if you earn 10 million pounds a year if you spend 11 then you're not creating any wealth It's a little bit weird that people can be so rich and yet so stupid at the same time, but thankfully Morgan is here to help us through with his no BS finance advice. So today expect to learn Morgan's golden rule of becoming wealthy, why luck and risk are the same thing, why buying a Ferrari is often a terrible idea, what the hell the stock market was thinking in 2020, whether he'll mud wrestle me, and much more. I love having Morgan on the show. Hopefully there won't be any more global crises for us to talk about, but for as long as he's giving personal finance advice, I am all ears. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, Pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap. Plus, you get your first month for free and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. It's time to upgrade our finances with the wise and wonderful Mr. Morgan Housel.
1: So if we could, if we could go for it, we we can talk about investing and then have a cage fight after that and see what happens. That would be re- like viewers would like that.
0: If the people of the internet want to watch me and you mud wrestle for money, there is a there is a pay per view audience out there.
1: There's a there's I, I have a price for everything. There's a price. <laughs> there's a price on everyone's
0: head. Look, oh, man, let's get started. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is the third time on the show this year. So to everyone on the internet who is wondering, things are getting pretty serious between me and Morgan now. Welcome back, mate.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I always enjoy our conversations. So I'm happy to come back for a third and hopefully more times after this. We'll see if I don't screw it up here for the third time. And hopefully there'll be a fourth forthcoming later this year. That's the plan, man.
0: That's the plan. So before we get started, you got a new book out, Psychology of Money. Why should anyone listen to you on finances? What are your credentials?
1: Well, here's, here's the thing about money. I don't think that credentials necessarily move the needle. That's not true in a lot of fields. If I wrote a book about medicine or aerospace engineering or dentistry, you should not listen to anything that I have to say. Finance, though, is very different because finance, what matters in finance is not necessarily what you know. It's not about how smart you are or the education that you have or the, the sophistication, the credentials that you have. We're doing well with finances, whether it's investing or personal finances, is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly has to do with how you behave has to do with just your relationship with greed and fear, how you think about long-term thinking and your you know, who you trust, how gullible you are, those kind of soft topics that is not necessarily what you know. It doesn't matter if you went to Harvard and you worked at Goldman Sachs. If you lose your head during March of 2020 or in 2008, none of that stuff matters anymore. So what's important about investing, I'll give you my credentials. I have been a full-time investing analyst and writer for 13 years. I've been researching and focusing on kind of the intersection of investing history and behavioral finance the history of how we think about money, what we can learn from those lessons and how we can think about finances in a more productive way. That's what I've done. And this book is kind of the culmination of the 20 most important things that I learned during that period. I try to wrap it in with a bunch of stories that have nothing to do with investing, but they all have a a really important takeaway about how we can think about risk with our money in a more coherent way.
0: I think that the way that you've written this book... You're my mate, so I'm allowed to... I'm always going to gas you up anyway. I'm always going to say that it's good. But this particular style of writing, especially a nonfiction book, short sentences, very snappy short sentences that sounds a lot like a dialogue, I think makes things easier to read. It's not a superbly a jump about, like read chapter one, then read chapter 10, pick it up, put it down as you want, but you could. And just, I think... Coming out of that blogosphere, coming out of the internet writing, where holding attention is your primary currency, right? You just don't want people to yeah. click, click off the page. Um, I really think that that is uh, come to the forefront in a very successful way, man. This book is phenomenal, and everyone that is listening, if you want, it's the rich dad poor dad of twenty twenty um, with with. A a better-looking author, I think that's the that's the (laughs) way.
1: Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I'll I'll tell you what's important to me. I read a lot of books. I know you do as well. But I've rarely finished books. Like, how often do I read to the last page? Probably like one in ten books. Even books that I really enjoy and books that I recommend to people, a lot of them I didn't read past chapter five or something like that. And I think the reason is very few topics require two hundred and fifty pages of explanation to get your point across. It's just not the case. So even a lot of very good books after chapter two, chapter five, whatever, you say, look, I, I get the point. It's a great point. I learned a lot from that point, but I don't need I don't need the rest of this. Like you've made your point. Don't like quit rambling on here. It was really important to me that uh, I, I wrote this book in a way that A, it's, it's 20 short chapters. Well, at first, the book itself is not that long. Uh, and each chapter is not very long uh, either. And every chapter can kind of live on its own. And that was important to me because rather than making one point that I rambled on about for 250 pages. I wanted to make 20 points where I made my point quickly. And then out of respect for the reader's time, I got out of your way, nothing more. There's actually a book that is one page. It's it's not even one page, it's like half a page. And when I turned that in, the publisher said, what's, is there something, what what happened here? Are you missing something here? And I said, no, that's, I said, no, that's all I have to say. And they said, well, you know, this is a book. Do you wanna go in a little bit deeper, do some more research? And I said, no, that's all I have to say on the topic. Out of respect for the reader, I'm done here. You move on to the next chapter. And what is important to me, I don't think there's any way to track this, but the metric that I wanted to maximize for when writing this is how many people finished the book. Not how many people bought it. Not how many people opened the first page. How many finished it? Now, not everyone will. It's not for everyone. I'm not, you know, that's that, it's a different topic. But if it's easy to read and you make your way through because there's no there's minimal rambling, uh, That's that's what I'm aiming for.
0: That is a lesson that so many authors should learn. And I think that we're kind of out of that, the particular example that you're giving now, the blog post that could have been a tweet that somehow ended up being a book um like right. that, that shouldn't that's not the way that it should be look keep it to 360 characters i read it on twitter that's great um fleshing out to that and you kind of thirst trap everyone because all of the lessons are in the final few pages like the main main like your synopsis of what the actionable takeaways of what you can do get re-put together yes. in the last few pages so there's like a, a little carrot to dangle um so it's called the psychology of money why should we be bothered at all about the psychology of money. Money's just numbers in and numbers out, isn't it?
1: See, that's what people get thrown off, I think. I think that's the root of a lot of financial problems for amateurs and professionals, is that we wanna think of finance like it is physics. And in physics, there are very clean formulas. There are there are precise answers with precision that never change over time. So if you roll a ball down a hill, we, can, we know exactly how fast it's gonna roll. And that answer is the same today as it was 200 years ago, very precise. Investing is just not like that at all. It's a human endeavor. It's much closer to, I think, uh, you know, I, I think the best analogy is probably medicine. Look, in medicine, there are facts, there are formulas, there are precise things that we know about how the body works. But people's relationship with medicine is very personal and very nuanced and very behavioral. A lot of what matters in medicine in the modern world is. Uh, how healthy are you? Do you eat a proper diet? Do you exercise? Do you smoke? How stressed are you? Those are behavioral things that feed into the process of modern medicine, but not in a, in a really precise scientific way. It's this mushy, nuanced, sociology-driven thing. Um, and I, I think with medicine too, you know, if you take two people with identical cancers, they might come to completely different conclusions on what, is ness- on what is worth it for them. One person might say chemotherapy, throw the kitchen sink at it. Another person might say, Just give me some pain meds. Let me be comfortable. And I just want to let nature take its course. And those answers might be right for for those two different people. There's no one right answer. Finance is totally the same where I can tell you what I do with my money. Here's how much I save. Here's how I invest it. Here's how I spend it. And that answer might work perfectly for my wife and I. And it might be nuts for you or someone else. Everyone's going to come to different conclusions just like we do with medicine. So that's why I think the psychology of money is so important. The other thing is like we know – how finance works. We've made a lot of progress in terms of the technical side of finance over the last hundred years. If you go back a hundred years ago, we didn't understand things like discounted cash flows uh, and you know and 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 dividend discount models. that just that information wasn't in the social sphere. But we do now. Like we've made like academic finance has figured out how finance works, and it was left for us to exploit. what is left for us to get better at is the psychological side of money.
0: Got you. So what does money get us?
1: Obviously, the, what, it, what it clearly gets us is stuff. It's, it's a thing that you can use to buy stuff. That's, that's the obvious answer. And look, I like stuff as much as anyone else. I mean, this is not a plea to live like a monk, but there's a lot else that money does for people. And to me, it took me a while to figure this out. But once I kind of realized it, it was so transformational, just for me personally, that what money does is it gives you options over your future and it lets you control your time. And I think the highest dividend that money pays, the best thing that I can do with my money is the ability to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want today. It's a sense of independence and a sense of freedom, a sense of controlling my calendar uh, that that lets me do stuff. And it's not to say that I don't like Ferraris and Bentleys as much as anyone else, I, I do. But what I really want out of my money that's gonna make me happier than any of those things is enough savings, enough wealth that I've built up and saved over time without spending so that I have control over my future. Uh, if, I wanna, if I wanna quit my job and do, go do something else, I can do that, I've got the savings for it. If I wanna move, I can do that. Take six months off. I can do that. If I were to get sick or there's an emergency, it's it's fine. It's not going to force me into anything I don't want to do financially. I've got savings to keep me going. It's that level of independence that I want. Charlie Munger years ago, um, who's in Charlie Munger is a multi billionaire, and he once told someone he said, "I have no desire to get rich. I just always wanted a glorious independence." And as soon as I, I read that, it was like that's that's me too. Like, do I want to be rich? Like, sure. Do I want, you know, the huge house on the lake? Of course, like anyone else, of course. But what I really want is a glorious independence. That's what, that's what I want money to do for me. And I think a lot of people want that as well without, without knowing it, without having that, that point clarified to them. It's like they, they wouldn't explicitly say that. But if you introduce that to them an in independence to do whatever you want, uh, a lot of people would say, yeah, that's actually what I want in life. It's just the freedom to do what I want. It's strange how
0: people's desires get so conflated, right? Like the same as when you ask people what would make you happy and they think it's the house, they think it's the car, they think it's the new expensive bag or whatever it might be. But when you strip it back and you listen to some super Eckhart Tolle remind you that it's to do with being present and being in the moment or uh, spending time with people that you care about, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it does require a a Morgan Housel, an Eckhart Tolle, whatever, to cut through the kind of the social norms and what people expect. Uh, And I think that that's definitely one of the main takeaways. Everyone that's listening needs to go back because Morgan's been on twice already this year. Go back and listen to episode one. That's like that's the prequel. Then there was a we did a special COVID edition just as the market was going absolutely berserk, kind of late March. That's the that's a DVD yeah. extra, uh, director's cut, uh, and then this is the this is the what's the third one? The sequel, sequel. The third. This is the
1: Netflix special. This
0: is the Netflix special. Yeah, that is correct. Um, so yeah, go back and listen to those. But what I can do because you've been on so much is I can quote you back to you of all of my favorite stuff that you've said. So my favorite one okay. is um, money allows you to do what you want, when you want, for as long as you want, with whoever you want, without anyone telling you otherwise. That is That's it. that is what it does for you. So what does it not get you?
1: What What doesn't it get you? I, I mean I mean, look, money gets you a lot. So what doesn't it get you? I think the better way to frame that is, what are you likely to overestimate getting from money? And a lot of it, the, the physical things, and I have to reiterate, like I, I like nice things too, but the physical things you just get used to over time. A lot of it is because if you were to get a nice car or a nice house, you kind of move the goalpost of your socioeconomic status. So let's just use extreme examples. Let's say you go out and buy a Ferrari. You're probably going to start hanging out with other people who have Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Aston Martins, and all of a sudden your goalpost has shifted. So if you're driving, if you're driving the Honda Civic, then the Ferrari level looks amazing. But once you get to the Ferrari level, you're, you, you just adjust your expectations to that level. And then, and then the joy that you get from it, the social status, it's not that it's not there, it's less than you would think it was. What's important about controlling your time is this, a lot of what makes people happy is not adding positive things, it's removing negative things. And if you don't have control of your time, so let's flip this around, people who do not have control over the time, people for whom they have to wake up at a certain time and go to work at a specific hour and do things at work that they don't wanna do, but their boss makes them do it. Your whole day is structured by someone else's priorities. That is a kind of thing that is likely to bring negativity to your life permanently. If you never have control over your time, that is something that is statistically correlated with people who are less happy than other people. So it's not that controlling your time adds happiness necessarily, it's that it removes displeasure, uh, and in, in, in a way that if you were to, to do it, so people who have control over the time, it's not that they have more good days, it's that they have fewer bad days than people who are uh, don't have control over their time. So that's it's an important way to keep that into context too. And this is why people who are very wealthy are not just walking blobs of happiness, like exuding like pleasure. They're normal people just like everyone else because having that money it doesn't necessarily make you. It just removes a lot of the bad things in life. Um, so that's, I, I think that is what money does not bring us. It, we, we, are, we are, I think, programmed to overestimate the pleasure that we get from stuff. And even the pleasure that we get from controlling our time is a little bit more nuanced in the sense that it's just removing bad rather than adding good.
0: Being rich might not make you happy, but being poor will make you miserable.
1: I think that's it. My mother-in-law, I, I actually brought this up on your show, so I don't want to repeat don't. I love re- it. I love re- it. It's the, it's, the,
0: it's the camping analogy, which I love. Get it out there. Tell us.
1: That's up. My, my mother-in-law brought up this thing years ago where she said, camping is fun, but being homeless is miserable. No, the same thing. You're sleeping outside in a tent, but one is in your control, one you are doing on your own terms, and one you're not. That's the only difference that it makes, but it makes all the difference in the world. So that's, I think that's, it's the same look for controlling my time. Most days I will, when I wake up, what I want to do, even if I have control over my time, what I want to do is go to work and do good work and be productive like everyone else. But I'm doing it on my own terms, on my own time with people who I like for a company that I want to work for. And that makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference. So that level of independence is all that I'm going for with money. That's all that I wanted. It's all that I've really striving for in terms of my financial goals is just incrementally with every dollar of savings being less reliant on others that I that I have that I otherwise would be if I were in debt or had no savings and was relying on the kindness of others to make it through my life financially.
0: Talk to us about how luck and risk are related. I know that you bring it up in the book and I think it's very interesting the observation selection effect that we have of success or failure with finance and the total uh, the total blind uh, blinkers that we have on either side that don't allow us to see how luck and risk were involved.
1: So there's two points here. The first is that luck and risk are actually like the exact same thing, just just opposites. But they're 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 cousins. It's just you know one's a brother, one's a sister. They're 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 very similar. Both luck and risk are this idea that there are things that can happen in the world that are outside of your control that have a bigger influence on outcomes than anything you did intentionally. That is what risk is and that is what luck is as well. Things that can happen outside of your control that have a big influence on your outcomes. Uh, And what's interesting is that as investors, purely in finance, we are keenly aware of risk. Investors talk about risk all day long and they hire risk managers and they adjust their returns for risk. Everything about investing is I'm gonna manage risk, manage risk, manage risk. But no one talks about luck, very few people. Uh, no no investors hire luck managers. You're never going to see, you, you never see any investor who says, look, I earned 50% last year, but you have to adjust that return for luck. No one says that. <laughs> even though we are fully aware of risk. Here's the thing. If someone loses 50% in the stock market, they will say, oh, really risky year. If someone makes 50% in the stock market, no one says, oh, really lucky year. Didn't, no, I, I didn't have anything to do with that. So luck and risk are the same thing, but we treat them so differently. A lot of this is, Look, if I am ascribing luck to someone else, I look like a jerk. If I say, look, Chris, you've done really well, but you just got lucky. I, that's, that's a mean thing to say. I don't want to say that to you. Even if we know with certainty that luck exists in the world, I look mean if I'm ascribing it to you. And if I'm ascribing luck to myself, if I say, look, I've had this level of success, but it was just lucky. I didn't have anything to do with it. It's hard for me to look myself in the mirror every morning. I don't want to admit that to myself. So that's why luck just kind of goes away. Whereas look, if something really unfortunate happened to me, if my industry collapsed, if the company I worked for went out of business, then I would say, oh, it was a risk. Like I, I just, I you know, I got caught up in a risk in life. But luck is just a very different thing. So even if we know it exists, it's just much harder to identify in real life. We just go through life kind of ignoring it uh, systematically. Everyone does. I do this too. The other point about luck and risk is that particularly for extreme success, who are the people that we tend to study, the people who tend to idolize are the ones who've had extreme success or extreme failure. Those are the people who we pay attention to. The line between huge success and huge failure is very thin. And it's usually only known in hindsight. People who are very successful tend to have taken a lot of risk. And it's only, and people who are very unsuccessful took a lot of risk too. They just ended up on the different sides of that equation. So it's very difficult to really know like if, if you have a hedge fund manager that really swings for the fences, and let's say it works out for them, let's say because they swung for the fences, there was a 10% chance that they would have done really well, and a 90% chance that they would have failed. Well, if they do really well, they ended up on the on the, the fortunate side of the 10% odds. And then we say, that guy is a genius. He's a billionaire, one of the great investors, because he ended up on the correct side of the, the 10% odds. If that person fails like they will 90% of the time and they go bankrupt, then we say this person has no idea what they're doing. Even if they made the exact same bet, uh, if they just end up on different sides of the luck versus risk equation, like it totally changes how we think about them. A really good example that I use from this is is a hedge fund manager named Monish Pabrai, who is one, one of my favorite investors. He's not a household name, but he's really a great investor. And years ago, he made an investment in a company called Delta Financial that went bankrupt. He invested a lot of money in it and the company went bankrupt. And he did an interview with a financial magazine afterwards and they asked him about that. Like, what happened with Delta Financial? And he said, Oh, that was that was a that was a, a smart investment. It just didn't work out. And they said something along the lines of, How can you say it was a good investment if you it went bankrupt? And he said, he said, I would make the same bet again. Like the odds were in my favor to do well on in this investment. I just ended up on the unfortunate side of risk. Like if 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 you are making an investment that has a 90% chance of success, uh, then, you know, there's a 10% chance it's not going to work. And that's what he was saying. Thinking about the world probabilistically is a smart way to do it, but it's so hard to do that because we want to think in a deterministic way. We want to think the world is just black or white. Were you right or were you wrong? Uh, When it's not like that, odds are really nuanced and they're much harder to wrap your head around. So that's, that's the hard dynamic with luck and risk that's easy to ignore.
0: The problem as well is that, in retrospect, you have no idea what the other outcome could have been. It's always brilliant for people to post-hoc their way through it. I can't remember who the quote is from. Someone said, you never get fired for hiring IBM. Right. Um, And the same thing is true of my friend Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy Advertising, where he talks about uh, you never get fired for following the formula when it comes to advertising. If this advert is just the same brand icon the little meerkat or the little teddy bear or the the big pirate or whatever it is uh, in a new scenario and it doesn't land and you're like but look we followed the formula like we did the same thing we've done all the rest of the time hey man pat on the back like you know sometimes it just doesn't work out dude like maybe we'll go again it would be maybe the illustration was a little bit off or the timing it's just a little bit but if you come in and you do something really innovative and it works you're a genius but if it fails you're out the door what, you, right. Why didn't you follow the Why didn't you follow the formula? Well, the formula wasn't reckless. working anyway. I would much sooner fail safely than be successful riskily. And yes, that's... and I
1: understand why people do that. <laughs> people are trying to maintain their careers. It's not I, I don't fault them for doing that, but it's a really important thing to me. One of the takeaways from the luck risk dynamic is that we need to be careful in terms of who we admire uh, and making sure that the people who we admire we're not taking lessons away from those people that are too specific. If I say, I really admire this investor, this person, but I'm unable to ascribe how much of their success was luck versus skill, then I need to make sure that I'm taking away the broadest lessons for them. If I say this person invested in this company in this way, so if I do that too, I'll be as successful as them. If you take a hyper-specific lesson from them, that's where you're most likely to get caught up. Versus a really broad lesson that applies to a lot of number of people, that is where we can be sure that there is something there that we can hold on to, versus the hyper-specific. So a lot of people who idolize Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, all these people, will take hyper-specific lessons from them and try to apply it to their own finances. What is the exact formula that Warren Buffett used 40 years ago to pick stocks, and how can I use that today? That, I think, is a really dangerous way to go about learning from anyone in any field. I think the more broader it is, the more likely you are to find something that is something that you can replicate yourself.
0: I think that is why I resonate with your particular approach to financial advice. And there's a number, of, there's an undercurrent at the moment in the um, online fitness world. Uh, we, we had this period sort of between 2005 and kind of pro- pro- probably about now where people were able to put out crazy diets where it's the 48-hour fast or the, the 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 carnivore diet or the keto or the this, this, and this. And it's kind of all come back around to it's just calories, man. Like it's just <laughs> calories in and calories out. Like are you eating more than you expend or are you expending more than you eat? And that's what it is. And it's this – um, beautiful simplicity that I'm really enjoying us all coming back to both with podcasting as well. Like this show's a good example. I'm filming on an absolute Logitech piece of shit, C220, something. <laughs> same, that, same. That I'm we're doing the same. I'm filming on, we're both doing it. Um, but uh, I think now the glitz and the glamour and the fancy stuff, people are kind of through that. And you might even see this. I've not even thought of this before. Perhaps this is the same reason Trump got elected that everyone was sick of the glitzy, very complicated lies. They just want kind of the Thor. You know, like that, I'm not, that is no way an, an analogy between physically Donald Trump and Thor. But the, the idiot, the blunt instrument, you know, that comes yeah. in. Like I can see through the, of the li- simple lies. I know. Not the yeah. I want, I want, I want to know what things. I'm going to expect. The same thing is true with finances. The same thing is true with stock picks and investing advice. The same thing is true with getting lean or losing weight. You've touched on, uh, Buffett there. I didn't know you first off, I didn't know you had two thousand books written about him, which you you drop in the book, which is like ridiculous. What can we right. learn from his wealth and from compounding?
1: What's interesting about Buffett, like he okay, so he's the greatest investor of all time. He's one of the richest men in the world. And if you dig into his wealth though, I think something's really interesting is that Buffett started investing when he was eleven years old, and today he's ninety years old and he's a full time, he's still going at it full time. That fact, the fact that he started so young and continued so late into his elderly years, is so fundamentally important to his success. His average annual returns over his life have been about 22% per year, which is phenomenal, of course. But if you were to say, okay, let's let's assume, hypothetically, that Buffett earned the same returns during his lifetime, but instead of starting at age 11, let's say he started at age 25, like a normal person. And instead of continuing through age 90, let's say he retired at 65 to play golf with his kids, just stopped investing, like a normal person, retired at 65. And earn the same average annual returns during that period. His net worth today, hypothetically, would not be $90 billion, It would be $12 million, 99.9% less than it actually is. 99.9% of his success can be directly tied to the fact that he started investing when he was a kid. And he continues at age 90. That's what is, his secret or his skill is that he's a great investor. No doubt about it. 100% full stop. But his secret that has created this level of wealth. that he's been a good investor for 75 years. And I think as you bring up in those 2000 books that are writing about Warren Buffett, how did he do this? What is his strategy? How does he think about business models and moats and markets? None of those books will just point out that we know as a matter of simple math, that the reason he's been so successful is just the amount of time he has been investing for. Yes, he's been a great investor. So you can dig into the business strategies, how he's dealt with uh, insurance float and debt and how he thinks about management teams. That's all really important. But what really moves the needle in terms of the dollar amount of the wealth he's been able to build is just the amount of time he's been doing it for. And that is very often not mentioned because it's too simple. It is too simple. If you are a PhD in finance and you're trying to ascertain how he did this and trying to use your brain power, use your knowledge to pick apart how to invest like Warren Buffett, you don't want to just say, oh, well, he's been doing it for 75 years. So that's that's it. The other reason is that a lot of people can't do this. If you are 60 years old and you're trying to invest like Warren Buffett, then telling you, oh well, you know, you you need to invest for 75 years to achieve these returns. Well, if you're still, if you're already 60 years old, you don't you don't want to hear that. So it's both too simple an explanation, and I think it's a it's a painful explanation for people who want to hear. It's a painful reality that the reason he has achieved this is because he has done something that a lot of us just mathematically cannot do. We don't have that much time in front of us to do that, which of course for that kind of success, of course he has done something that most of us cannot do. That's why he's, that's why he's worth 90 billion and you and I are not. Like, of course he's done something that is extraordinary. Um, and I think, so that's, it's just too simple in, in this idea. The other thing is that Berkshire Hathaway, his company does not charge fees. Uh, there's no fees attached. If you own Berkshire Hathaway, there's no fees in charge. Buffett's total compensation is $100,000 per year. It's been that way forever. Just that single fact alone, if you were to compare that to a mutual fund or a private equity firm, uh, just that fact alone that he doesn't charge fees accounts for a lot of his outperformance over time. You know, He's outperformed the market uh, by d- – depends on what benchmark you use if you're looking at private equity funds by something like five percentage points per year. Well, if you – just fees alone accounts for two to four percentage points of that outperformance. But that too, if you were to write a book about how Warren Buffett has done it, no one wants to write in that book, oh, we know that the majority of outperformance came from the fact that he doesn't charge fees. It's too simple an explanation. Uh, Charlie Munger, his longtime business partner, was once asked kind of how Buffett and Munger did this. And uh, Munger said, quote, If you were an observer, you would see that Warren did most of it by sitting on his ass and reading. And that's it. And that's, but that too is just too simple an explanation for people to take seriously. So there's always this thing where, you know, again, if we are to think about finance like it is physics or like it is, you know, something really complicated, then the answers have to be really complicated, but it's not. So it's not intuitive to think that the most important answers are really, really simple and basic. Because we want to use our brains to figure out the secret sauce, even if it's just right there sitting in front of you. You want to say, well, okay, that's, that's cute and all, but let's really try to figure out what's going on. But neither is losing weight.
0: Losing weight is very, very simple. Eat less than you expend for a consistent period of time. Building a podcast or an online audience, post content that resonates or produce content that resonates and do it consistently for a very, very long period of time. 100%.
1: I wrote an article a couple years ago called Useful Hacks, and I wrote this because years ago at a a different employer, uh, my my company hired a social media consultant to come in and gave a talk about here's how to really maximize Twitter, here's the time of day you should publish and how hashtags and how you can interact with them, all these like hacks to increase your social media uh, presence. He did not mention at one point during this consulting session that the key to doing well on social media is to write good content. That's it. You want to do well in social media? Write a good tweet that people are interested in. That's it. But you don't want to say that because people want the simple strategy. They, they, they want the hack. They don't want to put in the, the elbow grease. They don't want to grind it out in a way – they're just like Buffett. Like What is Buffett's secret? Invest for 75 years. That's his secret. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to hear that everyone wants to everyone wants to say well, well okay, okay that's great but how can i do this tomorrow yeah how can i do it today uh,
0: that's a lovely idea but what what how would you do it in 35 and it's like that first off especially doesn't doesn't um allow for understanding how compounding works so it seems right. like with everything that we've brought up actually with building your social media or uh, building a good podcast or becoming wealthy long-term time horizons is a bit of a uh the ability to suffer Discomfort long term is a a skill that everyone should acquire.
1: For a lot of industries, health is another one. Like you want to be healthy over the long term, you got to grunt and sweat in the gym in the short run. That's the cost of it. You want to be healthy over the long run, you got to you got to push away the Twinkies and eat the broccoli. Like there's a lot of things where the short term, uh, you know, the short term cost of admission is the price of long term returns. It's true in investing as well. Um, so I I think that's a lot of things. I, I said you know you should for money. You should save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist. Be an optimist in the long run in terms of, hey, if we invest in the economy, invest in capitalism, invest in businesses, you can do very well in the long run. But you have to save like a pessimist and realize that the short term is going to be a constant never-ending chain of recessions, bear markets, pandemics, uncertainty, these things that we did not see coming up. Or at the personal level, job losses, divorces, medical issues, like You have to be able to survive the short term and able to achieve and benefit from the long run.
0: I love it. Is getting wealthy a different skill to staying wealthy? What are the principles to keep in mind
1: there? It seems like they should be the same thing. Like Wealth is just a single topic. But as I just mentioned, saving like like a pessimist, investing like an optimist, that is getting rich versus staying rich. Uh, Getting rich, getting wealthy requires... Optimism, swinging for the fences, doing really well, being optimistic about the future. Staying rich requires a pessimism about the short run where you're saying, I don't know what's going to happen over the next three months. I got to make sure I have a lot of savings. I got to reduce my debt because I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep my job. I got to, I got to plan for, you know, unexpected expenses that might come up. Uh, You have to, those are two separate skills that you have to nurture and think about separately. And if you don't have one or the other, if people are just optimistic about the future, And they're so optimistic that they're really – that they're they're willing to push it in the short run in terms of no savings, lots of debt because they're so optimistic. Those are the people that end up running themselves off a cliff. And on the other hand, if you are pessimistic about the long run, if you're just going to save your money in cash and CDs, then you're never going to get rich to begin with. So you have to foster both of those. And they are conflicting skills, which is why a lot of people don't necessarily have them. There's a lot of turnover on the Forbes list of billionaires, not because they're old people who die. It's because they're people who became very rich but had no skill at staying rich. And a lot of it is the skills that will get you to to become rich actually counter the ability to stay rich. A lot of people who get rich are – got rich because they are so willing to swing for the fences. They're so willing to take a huge risk to bet everything on this one big crazy idea. That's the skill you need to get rich. Staying rich is the exact opposite. Staying rich requires paranoia, diversification, <laughs> uh, pessimism. That's what you need to stay rich. And if you don't have those at the same time, uh, you know, it's then then if you are fortunate enough to get rich or whatever word you want to use, just well off, doing a little bit better than you are, it's probably going to be a temporary endeavor. So I'm interested because I'm interested in compounding. I want to I want to make sure that I can maintain the level of financial, uh, you know, you know wealth that I have right now for the longest period of time. I'm not interested in doing something for the next year, even 10 years. I want to remain invested, remain compounded for the next 50 years. And the only way that I can do that is if I am paranoid about the short term, in a sense that is going to make me have a high savings rate, lots of cash, no debt, in a way that is almost completely counter to my long-term optimism.
0: Cultivate your paranoia, Morgan Housel 2020. That's the That's the synopsis that we've
1: got. Trademark. But 2020 is actually the perfect example of the continuous chain of breaking disappointments that happens to all of us that we need to manage for. No one thought that 2020 was going to end up this way. No one saw this coming. But if you look historically, I think the world breaks about once per decade. Not not on that exact timeline, but on average, once a decade, the world falls apart. COVID-19, 2008 financial crisis, September 11th. 7-7 7-7 seven, seven for, for, for the UK. Every 10 years, something bad happens. You Go back, Great Depression, World War II, GFK assassinated, on and on and on. So if you just use that as your historical baseline, I don't know when it's going to break or what is going to be the cause. It's, it's not a prediction of specific events. But the world is prone to breaking. And if you view that, then it just pushes you towards more safety, security, room for error in your finances for the short term but even though the world breaks every decade there's been tremendous progress over the long term so i want to so to acknowledge the constant breakages i'm pessimistic about the short term uh, but to exploit the long term optimism i'm optimistic about the long run so those are since those are not they seem like opposite it's hard to put those two together but they're both necessary to do well over time
0: i love that there's a really good example from mutual friend shane parrish mr farnham street Um, where he talks about signal versus noise. And the example, the first ever example that he used, uh, or the first ever example that I heard to explain signal versus noise as a mental model is this one. And he says, imagine that you're an investor and you'd put your money in the stock market and you were tracking where your investment had gone. And you looked once a year at what your investment had done. He says, imagine that you get 50% useful information and 50% totally useless noise. And he says, now let's increase that frequency. Let's check every one month so 12 times a year. Well, now you're getting towards like 90% noise and only 10% signal. Cause there's a load of little wiggles around. Anyone that's ever looked at the graph on a stock market, it looks like a spider going for a walk. He says, and now imagine that you're going to check every day. And that is 99.999% noise and only 1% signal. And that, Um, ability to, first off, the luxury that you don't have to feel like you need to check it. I don't know how often you check your Vanguard fund, but I'm going to guess it's just when you want, not when you feel compelled to. It's not every morning when you wake up that you wake up and crap your pants because like, where's the Vanguard fund gone? It's like... I,
1: I, I check it when the market's gone up and I don't check it when it's gone down. It's a really useful skill to making me believe that I'm only going up over time. Is... I, I, I'm only half kidding about that. I'm a, but here's the thing, I don't make any actions when I check. I like checking it because it's fun to watch, but I don't change anything. So I, I think it's fun. I think it's fine to check your portfolio often as long as you're just checking it. It's dangerous if you check it, and every time you check it, you are tempted to say, oh, maybe I should sell this, maybe I should buy that, turn the levers, do this. That's when I think it gets dangerous. Um, and back to your Shane partnership, your Shane example, you know, checking your portfolio every day, let's talk about the Robinhood traders that might be checking it 47 times a minute. Like we're in a different world here. And that is, of course, back to luck and skill. The shorter the time period that you're looking at, the more likely that the results are the result of uh, of, of luck or, or risk. And it's not until we've, the longer you look, the more you can say, okay, this was this is skill. The longer period of time, through a variety of different environments, recession, boom, bust, if you can do well through all those periods, that is something you can say, okay, there's a skill there. But the shorter, the more you shrink the time horizon, it's just going closer and closer to luck, risk, noise that you're looking at.
0: Tell me that you've seen the wall street bets subreddit
1: i've i've heard of it I've, i oh, i think I checked morgan, it once but i'm not, but i'm on. not I'm, I'm not a frequent observer dude this is like this
0: is like softcore porn to you this is
1: just
0: <laughs> the most entertaining so everyone that's listening and you once were done morgan Google, uh, go go to youtube and search wall street bets dankest trades Oh my god they put together the highlights of this subreddit where people just make outrageous they bet their entire live savings on the fact that apple's going to go up by 10% by the end of the week or down by this and dude it is it makes your bumhole like sort of do this like clenching thing a little bit and um it's it, uh, you know those um those videos of uh, free climbers and they'll be on a, the doing a handstand on the top of a skyscraper that's yes. still a building site That sweaty palm sensation is precisely the same thing that you get when you watch these videos. Dude, it is, it's so compelling. So I, I urge everyone to go and do it. And if the guys from Wall Street bets are listening, you're heroes. You're crazy, but you're also, you're also heroes as well. If you were to write a golden rule of becoming wealthy, what do you think it would be?
1: Uh, live below your means and be patient that's it that's 90% of finance that is 90% of finance it's not even that's not even like the simplified version if you can actually do that you have a you have a phd in finance that's that's what it requires <laughs> because here's the thing i mean let, let me let me let me walk through this living below your means it does not matter how much money you earn you can earn 10 million dollars a year and if you spend 11 million it doesn't that doesn't matter you're not building any wealth obvious obvious statement But we need to say that, that how wealthy you grow is not about how much money you make, it's about how much money you save. So living below your means at any income level, whether you make $10,000 a year, $10 million a year, is the key that you need for finance to build wealth over time. And being patient, again, is just putting the odds of success in your favor. The shorter the period of time, the more you're relying on luck to fuel your success. Whereas the longer period of time, the more you're putting your odds in your favor. So if you can live below your means and be patient in your investment, that's it, you're done.
0: Game over. Anyone who's got a finances PhD that's listening, I'm very sorry. Had Josh, Kaufman on, had Josh Kaufman on recently who uh, said anyone who's gone and paid 20 grand for an MBA doesn't need to just read my book. So there we go. We've saved, we've saved people across the, the entire world hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, what were some examples that you found of rich people doing crazy things?
1: Oh, I mean they're endless. I mean, I mean the the, the thing that that you that you brought up in, in with Wall Street bets, you know, a lot of those people have money and they just can't I my wife and I often remark whenever we see someone doing something, we say something like that. We say people hate money. People that like, cannot stand money. They think they want it, but as soon as they get it, they're like, "How can I get rid of this as quickly as I can doing the most ridiculous thing that I can." They hate money. Uh, so I think I think there there's there's a lot of that. I opened the book with a story about When I was in college. I worked at a very nice fancy hotel in Los Angeles. I was a valet. And there was a guy there who was very smart, very successful. He was a technology entrepreneur. He had built and sold several companies. He was filthy, filthy rich, but his relationship with money was unlike anything I had ever seen. He was the quintessential of what I just said, uh, could not get rid of money fast enough. And one day he was, I mean, he was, he was, a, he was a drunk too. He was always, uh, he was a very colorful guy and he came to us when we were always running these crazy errands for him as valets. Um, and he came to one of my, co- my colleagues one day and he said, he, he carried around this thick stack, of hundred dollar bills and he peels off like half an inch, hundred dollar bills. And he says, go to the jewelry store down the street and get me some gold coins. My friend, the valet, goes out and does this, comes back with the gold coins. And this technology entrepreneur and his friends stand at the edge of the Pacific Ocean on at this hotel, and they take these gold coins and they start skipping them like rocks. See who's can go the farthest. And they're cackling. They're just laughing at who's can go the farthest. As far as I know, the as far as I know, the coins are still there. Maybe we should maybe we should go get them. But uh, anyways, I, I at the time I, I was young and I didn't really understand. But I, I remember watching this guy, and being like, How long can this last? How Like how sustainable is that relationship with money? And I learned years later that he went bankrupt. Uh, surprise, this, this, surprise. As, as everyone should, should, should assume. So this gets back to, the thing that was so astounding about it is that he was a genius. He was a technology entrepreneur that created these incredible products, uh, but his relationship with money just completely blew it all. Uh, so this gets back to, you can be the smartest person in the world and have all the analytical skills, but if your relationship with money is not well honed, none of it matters, it all goes away. So you um, see a lot of people uh, do similar things.
0: I hypothesized on one of our episodes at the beginning of this year, I proposed that people have a materialism set point, kind of like you have this hedonic adaptation. You have like a materialism set point, which is um, inbuilt somehow into you. I didn't know if it was psychological or if it was genetic. And it would have been influenced heavily by were you in a family that gifted very heavily around christmas time and birthdays was it very much a keeping up with the joneses sort of environment and my prescription was if that is the way that you are that you show love in the world that you feel um acclaim and success you better hope that you get a good job like you'd better hope that you are the director of some huge company or your investments go well or you get into angel investing or whatever it might be and i had a psychologist on the show very recently called Fiona Murden who wrote a book called mirror thinking about the mirror neuron and I brought this up with her because it sounded like what she was talking about and she says that is precisely what people have they have a materialism set point the same way as we have a hedonic set point the same way as we have a happiness set point there is an amount of spending that we are used to and that um, is kind of a little bit of an immutable truth what we're talking about what we're trying to do here is uncouple someone's ability to create wealth from where they started. Look, if you follow this particular process, you can achieve some respectable returns. Yep. This, the materialism set point and the this hedonic set point that you have as well, that is a little bit less meritocratic. That is something yeah. that's kind of either a blessing or a curse, depending on which side of the coin you fall on and, and where your life ends up. Um and for that as well, I think that's really important for people to realize they should do some internal work think look do i need to actually work this hard for me i think the same as yourself i'm happy just i like a nice coffee like would i pay if i was a millionaire would i get a slightly nicer coffee well yeah maybe but you know just i don't spend tons of money i like a nice car but i don't like i don't need an would it be fun to have a helicopter yeah of course it would be fun to have a helicopter but I don't need a helicopter. But there are people out there who have to have the Levouton bag. They have to have the, the red-bottom shoe. They, you know, they have to have everything. And for those people, they need to um, look at themselves very, very carefully and think, right, how can I curb the areas of my psychology which aren't aligned with long-term wealth accru- uh, accrual? And how can I service those in the most, uh, I suppose, the most prudent way possible?
1: Yeah, that, that, that brings up two points that I think are really important. One is that um, I think the most important financial skill is getting the goalposts to stop moving. If you are fortunate enough to be someone whose income and wealth is growing over time, if your expectations grow in lockstep, or if your expectations grow higher than your income, none of it matters. It's not going to feel that great to you. And I think a lot of the reason why people are somewhat disappointed with the wealth that they might be lucky enough to create when they get there, they say, oh, this doesn't feel like I thought it would. It's because if you are uh, if you are you know, at, at a low level of wealth and you dream about what it would be like to have a million dollars, you are using your current expectations and then and then transplanting yourself into someone who has a million dollars. So there's a big gap between your current expectations and a million dollars. But once you get to a million dollars, your expectations go up to a million dollars too. And then it doesn't feel that great anymore. You start looking at people who have 10 million, 20, 50 million, and that never ends. Uh, so getting the goalposts to stop moving is the single most important skill because being happy with your money is just the gap between what you have and what you expect. So if those two things move at the same level, you're never going to feel that great with your money and keeping your expectations low and having a sense of enough, It's not to say that you don't want more, but you need to have a a, a well-honed ability to say, okay, this is enough. This is all that I need. If I get more than that, like great, that's a cherry on top, but my expectations are not going to exceed this level. That level might be different for everyone and even different at at different points of your life. But If you don't know where that level is and if you're not trying to keep your expectations below it, going out of your way to keep your expectations below it, you're going to have a hard time with money no matter how successful you might be lucky enough to be in your life.
0: So. earn rich think poor i suppose is one of the other little maxims that we can pull out of so far we need financial role models though right we need someone to, to aim for an example to follow and that someone has to be properly financially smart and not just like with the flashy displays of wealth like the the fellow with the the gold coins um but also you had this story about a janet who saved four million that really to me that's not a poor that's a poor role model as well because it's not a life i would find very exciting it doesn't you know it doesn't really fire me up oh yeah i'm gonna not i'm gonna live in a tiny flat for all my life and then give away three million dollars to charity after i'm dead so who should we try and emulate is there a perfectly balanced financial role model that you know of that everyone can just go and follow on instagram or something
1: no, because the point that I want to make is that it's very different for everyone. There are people, uh, not you and not necessarily me, although maybe I'm closer to it, who would not who would not aspire to be someone like Ronald Reed, the janitor who gave away $4 million. There are people who would be like, that's, that's exactly what I want to do. I don't know if you saw the news just yesterday. The guy who started duty-free st- uh, stores in airports, his name is Chuck Feeney. His net worth at one point was $8 billion from starting duty-free stores. He gave away every. He kept two million for he, for he and his wife, two million with an M, and gave away the other seven point nine 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 billion. And just as of yesterday, as of the 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 news story came out yesterday, he has officially given it all away. His net worth is now two million dollars. He lives in a small apartment. Uh, he flies coach. He drives like a Volvo. Uh, so for him, that is that is the dream. He never had any material aspirations above two million dollars. Uh, And other than that, it was like, just get all, I want to give everything else away to charity. Other people are not like that. So it's different for everyone. And that's why there's no one financial role model uh, uh, that we can all look to, because what is, what I want might be very different from what you want, very different from what Chuck Feeney wants and other people. So this gets back to the idea that personal finance is more personal than it is finance. Everyone is different. And what I want to do might make no sense to you. And you might criticize it and say, how can you how could, how does this make sense? This thing that I'm doing with my money, how does it make sense? How does it make you happy? Well, for me, it does. And then, and for my wife, it does. So, and like you, you can do your own thing and that's fine too. I think health is really similar. I run, I, I don't lift weights, but I run, but i almost, I I've increased it a little bit uh, recently, but i never run more than three to five miles. Could I run? Could I train for a marathon and do that? Probably. I I think, I, I think I'm capable of doing it, but I don't necessarily aspire to do it because my goal for running is not to become the greatest athlete to push the limits as hard as I can to do well in a marathon. My goal with running is to keep my health adequate enough that I don't gain a lot of weight over time. That like that's that's full stop. That's my goal. Same like if I do lift weights once in a while, it's not like how can I get how can I get huge? How can I get ripped? It's like how can I make sure that 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 my bones are staying strong enough over time that I'm not just a total couch potato? And that's it. I don't aspire for anything more than that. So the, I think people have the same thing with money. Uh, what my goal is might be totally different from yours. Just as my health goal is probably different from yours as well.
0: We're out of the safe zone now. We're no longer in your book, and I'm going to ask you some questions I've had planned since our earlier episodes this year. What is your response to the people that say that Morgan Housel can't pick stocks? Name me one big stock pick that Morgan's got right over the last 10 years. Index funds aren't financial advice. Morgan doesn't know what he's on about.
1: Well, uh, the index funds that I own have big positions in Amazon, Google, Netflix, Apple, uh, so the odds are that I have owned more great stocks than you, Mr. Stock Picker, have. So <laughs> take it. Look, over a long period of time, over a long period of time, I, I'm happy to compare my returns to anyone else's because look, we know statistically that uh, people who try to beat the market, 90% of them will fail, which is how it should be. That's a, Of course, that's how it is. Like, what, what kind of world do people expect where everyone who tries to make a fortune in the stock market can? That's crazy. Like I, I used this example before of if you look at college uh, sports players, what percentage of them make it to the pros? It's like two to five percent, depending on what you're looking at. Uh, no one says that's wrong. No one says that b- that's bad. No, 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 no one says college sports is a fraud. People to say, look, it should be hard to make it to the pros. That's exactly what you would expect. The pros are the pros because it's the best of the best. And beating the stock market is the same, which is why 90% of people who try it over the time fail. Which means that myself as an index fund investor, I almost almost certainly, by definition, will be will end up the course of my life in the top 10% of money managers. Which is just to say, like, People can criticize it all they want, but over a period of time, I'm, I'm happy to compare our returns, especially because the index investor probably has the highest odds of leaving it alone and actually letting it compound for 50 years versus the, the fund manager who might, you know, fund managers retire, or they go on to do something else, or they, you know, they, they reach a rough patch and their clients take out all their money. I, I think I have the highest odds of just keeping this and letting it compound for 50 years than I would if someone could uh, then in an active strategy. That is not to say, and this is where I differ from a lot of index fund investors. Do I believe that some people can outperform the market over time? Yes. Do I believe that there are people who can pick winning stocks better than ours? Yes, 100%. And a lot of index fund investors will tell you no, it's just impossible. Uh, I won't tell you no, I just think it's hard. I think just like, are, are, there, are there college basketball players who will go on to be better than LeBron James? Yes, it's hard. Not very many of them. Of course it's hard, but yes, of course it's possible and it exists. So that's, that, that's, just, that's where I land on the, on the investing strategy. I also make this important point, it's probably the most, the most important point that the way I invest works for me. It might not work for you. And I don't mean that in a dismissive, passive aggressive way. If, 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 if something works for you, then, then do it. This works for me. This is how I uh, keep my head on straight and be happy and go to bed at night saying like, I'm really happy with my finances. If you have a different strategy that works for you, that's the one that you should pick.
0: Another thing to consider is that your particular setup financially permits you to not have to do work. Once it's in, it's in, which I I guess is also a, a, a good... Uh, strategy for sex that you know it's just there it's in we leave it there we don't we don't take it out not until the, the time is right um and- i was gonna
1: say there, there there is some conclusion but yeah, that's- yeah.
0: <laughs> um whereas what's the cost we talked earlier on about like unseen costs of money if your investing strategy if you're scalping and you've got to wake up and have a, a line of cocaine and five coffees before you begin your workday and sit down at your seven seven screen supercomputer that you've got set up in your in your office or whatever. That is a very different sort of life. Now, for some people, there is there are some people out there who are built for that. They love the adrenaline. Yes. They love the anxiety. They love the the rush of just p- picking it perfectly, deploying the trades, all the the take profits trigger at the right, blah blah, all this stuff. And then there's other people, and there's everyone in between. Um, And for me, my particular lifestyle is anything for an easy life. I want as much passive investment as property. Here's something I haven't even said. I know a lot of people ask. I own a a few houses in the UK that are buy-to-lets. I rent them out to students and to young professionals. I'm going to pivot to become managed from probably later this year, Uh, and that is simply for this situation. I've done another round of move-ins June august and september and the tenants are lovely but it's just too much of a headache i can't be asked to do an inventory again i can't be asked to, to, to tell them how to work the washing machine or where the stopcock is or why the, the this like the banister is a bit wobbly or any of that i don't want to deal with it anymore and i'm happy to give away eight percent a year of that to make it someone else's headache, right? But that's the only reason that I know externally what I want is because internally I've done the work. I've aligned my financial setup with my psychological makeup. And that's what everyone needs to do.
1: And look, someone could say, Chris, why don't you want to earn an extra 8%? Do you just not like the wealth? Do you not like the money? You don't want to earn it? You you don't think you can earn extra money? And your response is like, no, of course I could. It's just not worth it to me, given the risks and the the amount of effort that I want to put into it.
0: It's the the the, headache, Morgan. I've I've always always
1: said, do I know investors who can outperform the market? Yes. Why don't I invest with them? A lot of it, again, is because... uh, uh, the odds that i would not be able to maintain that strategy over time are higher than they are for me right now but the other thing is like look i i could earn higher returns but i put that in the same bucket as saying i could also double my salary if i got another job and worked you know until 4 a.m every day i'm just not i'm not interested in that there's a cost to all of this there's a, there's a cost to trying to beat the market and i think for me that cost is not necessarily worth it given the re- the goals that I have, and keeping the goalposts pretty low that I have, where it's like, if I can stay invested in index funds for 50 years, I will achieve every goal that I have, and then some. So why am I going to take more risk, risk that might put me below my goals to try to get there? There's this great quote from Warren Buffett that I use in the book, where he says, if you risk something that is important to you, in order to gain something that is unimportant to you, that is foolish. There's no reason that you should do that. Risk something that is important to you to gain something that is not important to you, Why would you want to do that? So why am I going to risk the money that I have that I need in order to gain money that I don't need because it's above my goals? Why would I do that?
0: The reason that that happens, again, and this is why the psychology of money does make sense as a title, is because people think that that's what they want. I don't think people do it some people do it perhaps unthinkingly but most people are fairly obsessive about money when especially when it comes to investment spending they can be frivolous investment they tend to be obsessive especially if they're type A and for this they're like no no that's what I that's what I want that's what I need it's like if you spent uh, before before anyone gets a robin hood uh account they should have to do 6 months of mindfulness meditation because their <laughs> investing strategy would be so much different journal for a year meditation 15 minutes a day for six months and your investing strategy will change far more than if you read like the 2000 books on Warren Buffett. I need to bring this Don't up. do know
1: what that would do to Robinhood's business model. They, 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 they might lose some, uh, that might increase their customer acquisition costs a little bit. But yeah, I, I agree. It would be totally different. The I mean, mo- a lot of things with Robinhood is that um, it's primarily, it's primarily young men doing this and look, you know how the story's going to end. They're all, they're all, they're all going to lose money. You don't know when, you don't know exactly how long it's going to last, but you know they're all going to lose money. 100%, 100% odds. A lot of that is a good lesson to learn. To learn that the hard way is actually a great way to learn it. And if they can learn that lesson when they're young versus when they're 47 and trying to put their kids through college, then okay, great. Like Maybe that's a good thing. There's also this thing with Robinhood where we can't just pretend that this is a game. Like this is real people's savings that can really screw up your life. There's a story in the United States, maybe some of you have heard of it, of a guy, a Robinhood trader, I think he was 20 years old. He logged onto his account, maybe this was two months ago, and there was a glitch in the UI. It wasn't reporting things accurately. And he had he put $10,000 into a Robinhood account, and he logged into his account, and his account balance was negative $700,000. It was just a glitch in the UI. It wasn't that actually wasn't a real number, but he killed himself the next day because he thought he owed this much money 20 years old uh which is just to say like again this is not a game we can't just say buyer beware maybe you lose your whole life savings like best of luck we can't just we can't just gamify this and say you know buyer beware i think there is a sense where it's like no we we need to be able to we, we need to be teaching people the right way to do this but there's also a sense of i'm glad in some way that they're learning these hard lessons through real experience versus just reading about it, someone else going through it. They're learning it. They're going to burn their own fingers doing this. Maybe there's some something positive about this, even if we should really have this idea that it's not a game. These are real people's lives and real pieces, people's emotions that are being toyed with.
0: I'm telling you, shortcut to success, dankest trades of Wall Street bets on YouTube, It'll teach you all that you need to know. That's the that's a DVD extra. First you read Psychology of Money, then you watch Dankest Trades of Wall Street Bets. The most hilarious thing to do with the Wall Street Bets sub for. Remember that this subreddit is everyone is trading on Robinhood, right? Robinhood have their own, as many brands do, they have their own Reddit account. And they joined and they tried to be a part of the conversation, instantly banned by the moderators, never to be let back. They were like, we don't want you here. Fuck you. We're going to use your system. Did you hear about the guy who found the infinite money glitch by moving it between Robin Hood yes. cash and Robin Hood gold? So that was part of Wall Street bets as well. And this guy turned like $1,000 into $50,000, then managed to get himself into like half a million. And it, went, it was on Bloomberg, like uh, business and all this sort of stuff. Yes. It made national press. Dude, it's phenomenal. Speaking of phenomenal trades, can we talk about Bill Ackman this year?
1: Yeah, I mean, holy
0: he's, I
1: mean, shit! Can yeah, you... I mean he's he's swung for the fences a lot. Uh, I, I I don't I don't know a lot of the details about it. I, I if I recall right, so I might be getting this wrong, but he was. He went on CNBC in like March and was talking down the economy. We're all going to the Great Depression. And then it was revealed that he was short the market. Is that is that the gist of what it was?
0: He put a very specific type of insurance onto his trades, I think. I don't necessarily think that he shorted the market. I think he put a very specific, very expensive type of insurance on his trades that protected him against this this exact thing. And he the returns that he made was in the billions. So they're calling it the new big short, which obviously there was yeah. a movie made about. But the difference is that Ackman's short took six weeks.
1: It took six weeks to <laughs> not, happen. Not not five years, like the actual big short with the exactly, housing market. Exactly.
0: exactly. So that, I mean, Bill Ackman, for all that he, he he tried to take down Herbalife. He's been in some sort of, he's one of these guys who's super, um, uh, Prevalent, very, very prominent as well, like uh, high visibility when it comes to especially short, like short investing. But fucking hell, man, like, what do you say to that? What do you say to a guy who makes his investors like billions in weeks?
1: you only need to do that once or twice in your career and then the rest of the time you can do whatever you want you can go buy whatever mansion you want go to every club that you want get on all the trouble that you want if you have one of the, if you have two of those in your in your career then that's yeah, that's your free pass but i think that it like let me make a serious comment about this a lot of no not a lot every one of the best investors over time um their career success is tied to a handful of trades and what they do in the other years don't necessarily matter. They don't move the needle. It's like once every 10 years or once every 20 years, they completely knock it out of the park. And then the other 19 years, they're just kind of meddling along. That's always how it works. So I think the Bill Ackman story is instructive because that's how it works forever. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. Uh, but you know, Munger has said, if you take Berkshire's top five investments out, they have made dozens of investments. Take out five, they're Berkshire's long-term track record is average. It's just five big investments, Geico, General, Reed, that have really moved the needle. And you know, Apple is the other one. Berkshire's made now something like a hundred billion dollars in profit. If Berkshire makes a hundred billion dollars in profit, all the other little investments that people, you know, look at, or the the, the other failed investments that none of that matters. You make a hundred billion from Apple, what wipes everything else away. So that like tail driven success that we see with Ackman, that's that's ubiquitous across all very successful investors.
0: What's happened with Tesla? An apple this year is the market sentiment and the price just become completely unhinged from the real world. What's going on?
1: Yes, completely. But then, but the really important question is how long can that last? Like, just because you found something that is unsustainable does not mean you know when it's going to become more sustainable. Like things can. So, if it, is it crazy today? Yes, I I, I, I joked with a friend. I, I I wasn't joking. I said I feel like there are as many Teslas as Hondas on the road these days. I, f- I see Teslas. I live in Seattle. They're everywhere. And he said, okay, you're wrong. Honda sold 10 times as many cars as Tesla, but let's assume you're right. Let's assume Tesla sales are equal to Honda sales. Honda is worth one-tenth of what Tesla is, one-tenth. their sales are 10 times higher and the company's worth 10 times less. So yes, you look at something like that and it's like, of course it's ridiculous, but that does not mean you know when it's gonna turn or it does not mean that Tesla cannot increase another 10 fold from here. Like just because something is crazy does not mean you know the boundaries of insanity uh, <laughs> is 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 what it what it comes down to. So that's I I, I don't I don't I don't have any bets or on where it's going to go. Betting against Elon Musk has never has never worked out for anyone. There are a lot of people who are totally convinced that Tesla was a short at hundred dollars a share and then it went to three thousand or whatever it was. So uh it's fascinating to watch but i I don't i don't place any wagers on where it might go from here never underestimate people's ability to like fuel crazy things for longer than you might think
0: and never underestimate elon musk that's definitely something to take any man that can drill holes under the ground and then fly cars along it you just don't want to you don't want to mess with him so we'll
1: finish he was like 29 he made a life bet to colonize mars you're going to bet against someone like that what were you doing at 29 yeah, you weren't not, colonizing, mars, not were you? colonizing mars at all no so, yeah exactly so of course he doesn't of course this is a guy who does not think the normal rules of corporate boundaries and innovation boundaries apply to him didn't he get taken like, of course off course he doesn't didn't he get taken off the board of tesla
0: after he got accused of of stock manipulation through tweeting so he got taken uh-huh. off he got taken off the board of something and then just kept tweeting
1: and that's again, if you have the personality that you think at, at age 29, you think, I'm going to colonize Mars, and actually built a rocket ship that is legitimately making progress to do that, of course you don't think that, the, that the, the boundaries of social decorum around tweeting apply to you. If you think you can colonize Mars, of course you think you can tweet whatever the hell you want without repercussion. Of course you don't. If you think that you can take on GM and Toyota and build a car company that's going to be worse than them, of course you don't think that you need your lawyer's permission to send out a tweet. Like that person, the things that people love about Elon Musk is the fact that he does not think the rules apply to him. That's what we love about him. So we should not be surprised when he he does things that look bad uh, because he didn't think the rules apply to him. Like you have to take the negatives with the positives. What people love about Elon Musk is the fact that he does, does not care about what you think about him or what lawyers or regulators think about him. He's going to do whatever he thinks is right. And there are positive attributes to that and negative attributes to that. So if you are a Tesla investor saying, I don't like him tweeting, he's, he's going to keep tweeting. He's going, this is the same for Donald Trump. It's just integral to who we are. And the reason people like Trump is because he tweets like he does. So you should not be mad at him when he tweets like he does. That's part of the package.
0: Who's going to win the election in November?
1: Uh, in January, I did a I did a conference and someone asked the same question. And I said, I'm gonna give you the worst answer that Eddie Pundrick can give, which is 50-50. Uh, that's the worst answer. No one wants to hear that answer, but I think it's I think it's the truth. I don't I don't think it's any more than that. Uh, I I I wish I had more to give you than that, but anyone who thinks Biden is a is a is a slam dunk and he's way ahead in the polls, I think is is obviously overlooking what happened in 2016. Uh, because of the electoral college system, the the Republicans have a legitimate head start advantage in this. So even if Biden is ahead in the polls, Hillary Clinton had almost the same odds to win that Joe Biden does today. And anyone who thinks Trump is a slam dunk is probably overestimating uh, the idea that what happened in 2016 was low odds. It happened. It occurred. And it could happen again. But if you say, oh, well, Trump won in 2016, so he's going to win in 2020. That's not how it works. I'm going to give you, again, the worst answer that no one wants to hear, which is 50-50.
0: Douglas Murray uh, Contributor, uh, associate uh, director, or whatever he is, of uh, the spectator. I asked him the same question, and he thinks kind of the same outcome as you, but in a totally different way. He thinks it's going to be so contested because of yes. accusations no, was- of mail-in fraud. And um, if the Dems win, um, no one's going to win by a landslide, I think. I think it's going to be tight. Um, and if the Republicans win, it will be accusations of Trump's manipulated the postal thing and yes. do this yes. and and the, the same in reverse right so that that is a and i only learned this on a on a podcast and i've had like a i'm so glad that i have no uh sort of horse in this race because that's a real existential threat man like you know given yes. how inflammatory everything is in the states at the moment and then add on top the fact that no one really trusts anyone especially party to party and th- everything's been primed for November, it would almost be best if it was a landslide. If it's a if it's a a fifty five forty five, a sixty forty, great.
1: If it's a yeah. fifty point forty nine point, <laughs> yes, holy shit. No, you're right. I think the odds that look in the scenario that Biden wins, the odds that Donald Trump says, "Hey, we tried our hardest, but congratulations to President Biden. I'm going to see myself out now." The odds that that occurs are zero point zero percent. Not 0.1, 0.000%. No chance of that, that that occurs. And in any scenario in which Biden wins, I think you're right. The odds that it's going to be dragged out in the courts as it was with uh, George Bush and Al Gore 20 years ago are, are extremely high. I, I don't think anyone expects to wake up the day after the election and know with certainty all around who the president is. But that is a very important part of our democratic system. In 2016, Uh, From what I understand, Barack Obama called Hillary Clinton the night of the election and said, you need to concede. I know this is not the outcome that any one of us wanted, but is integral to the democracy of the United States that the loser concedes. And Hillary Clinton did. At the start of her press conference the next morning, the day after the election, she stood in front of the microphone and said, Donald Trump will be our next president. You know how much that had to rip her to shreds inside? But she said it because it is so important. And what's... And what's crazy that you that you reference here, and I think it's totally right, is the odds that that occurs this year, virtually zero, virtually zero. So you take something that has been so important to our democracy and you think, well, there's no way it's going to happen. And it's a big threat, big threat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you know what it is, like 2020 is some history for you, if nothing else, we, we were we were kind of missing a bit of history 2010 to 2019 we just had social media and like, like TikTok <laughs> not, stuff. Not, a lot, not a lot happened there's no history and then this we just had latent latent history all caught up to us and gave us
1: fucking whiplash and the game charging there's there this great quote from Nassim Taleb who says history does not crawl it leaps that was that's what it is history is not something that moves slowly over time history is something that flatlines and then boom comes out of you from the middle of nowhere and you're right, that's what 2020 is.
0: Some history for you. Look, Morgan, man, Psychology of Money will be linked in the show notes below. I implore you to go and check it out. If ever there was a year where you need some financial advice, it would be this one. And, I, you know, it's everything that we've been through today, plus more. James Clear, Daniel Pink, Annie Duke, who is coming on this show next week uh, for her new She's book, uh, and Howard Marks. Like, you've just got the biggest, the biggest swinging dicks of uh of risk and of uh psychology just on your butt. So why not why not do it? Um Morgan Housel at Morgan Housel on Twitter. That's where you live. Anything else that people should oh collaborative fund.
1: Collaborative fund blog, that's where I is the book, you got the Twitter, you got the blog, that's it.
0: Well that's the thing. After three episodes, man, I can just do if you need me to drive the kids to school or any other things, <laughs> like you know, I just know what I'm doing. So man, it is
1: it's you're you're, you're part of the family now. I appreciate it. It's
0: the way it works. And we've got a little visitor just behind you.
1: Have a look. Is she, is she here? That's part of the family. You're going to be driving her to school soon. That's the plan.
0: Um, Man, it is always such a pleasure to speak to you. I'm looking forward to the next one already. Thank you so much. Okay.
1: Thanks again, Chris. This has been fun as always.